how does this fit globally? How does this fit in the big picture? Where are all the connections? And if you really want to affect change in this world, you really need to understand it as a systems engineering problem. Hi there, I'm Holly Ransom and welcome to Coffee Pods. It's time to fire up your day with some fuel for change. We run on a simple hypothesis here, that the humble act of grabbing a coffee with someone inspiring is all that it takes to tap into your ability to go out and be the change that you want to see in the world. Coffee potters, guess what? Your coffee date today is with an astronaut. And not just any astronaut, an astronaut who has led a mission to the International Space Station. I'm talking about Pam Melroy, retired United States Air Force officer and former NASA astronaut. She piloted two space shuttle missions and commanded the International Space Station and now plays a key role in leading the development of the Australian Space Agency. We're going to talk about leading teams and making decisions in the high-pressure environment that is space. I hope you thoroughly enjoy the conversation. Let's go to space. Well, Pam Melroy, I could not be more thrilled to be welcoming you to Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for making the time to have a conversation. Oh, thank you, Holly. It's not every day that I get to talk to an astronaut, I must admit. It kind of felt surreal saying that out loud today, <laughs> let alone a commander of the, uh, the International Space Station. I've got to start with, with the obvious question. Where was the aspiration to be an astronaut born? Did you, did you wake up and, and start as early as you can remember dreaming of being in space? Well, it was actually like an entire generation of astronauts and also a generation of engineers. Um, Fifty years ago in July, uh, I sat with my family to watch Neil Armstrong set foot on the surface of the moon, which, of course, I think most people in Australia know, uh, was actually beamed from Honeysuckle Creek and parks um, worldwide to inspire people. And really seeing a person, seeing a man land on the moon, I, I said, I want to go do that. I want to be an explorer. How did mum and dad react in that moment? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I can't believe how fortunate I am. You know, you can only imagine in 1969, uh, my parents always told me I could do anything that I wanted to do. Wow. And I know um, I, well, I know at that time what they meant was that I could be a doctor or a lawyer or get a PhD um, and never in their wildest dreams was, was uh, the idea of being an astronaut something that they thought was, um, I think, at all reasonable. But, you know, I, I have to, uh, to say that um, they never said that to me. They were like, oh, okay, if, if that's what you want to do. And um, they were incredibly supportive. And, and it, it took a while for me to actually realize that they truly did not um, see the path for how that could possibly happen. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's a real lesson for parents that your children actually believe what you tell them, even though they, you might think they don't. They really do. <laughs> And you were a woman on a mission. I mean, I love the idea of, of announcing at that age of your life that you've got a big, hairy, audacious goal like that. How do you then chart a path to making that real? What, how do you break down a goal that big? Yeah, so I uh, started by looking at uh, the people who were astronauts. And uh, at that age in my life, they were all military jet test pilots. So I said, okay, that's apparently what I have to be too. Um, but the, the interesting thing about it was that women were actually not allowed to fly 
military jets at the time. That, that actually changed when I was in high school several years later. Um, but I think I just had the confidence that, you know, at first it was just, I'm going to be an astronaut. And then when I was in high school and began to actually ask some of these questions, uh, that's when the opportunity to fly jets in the Air Force came open to women. So I'm like, tick, okay, uh, step one. And uh, and then, of course, Sally Ride uh, flew in space. She was the first American woman in space uh, right after I graduated from university. Now, she was not a pilot. She was a scientist. But I was sure that, that um, it was a matter of time before a woman pilot would be selected. So uh, I went through pilot training and did as well as I could. And I think in a lot of ways, I just stuck with it. I mean, there were a lot of people who... Um, really thought it was ridiculous, even in the Air Force, uh, for for me to even want to achieve going to test pilot school. Um, on the other hand, I had a really good university education, and so I felt very confident that I could handle the academics, and I just needed to perfect my craft and become a really good pilot, which is what I tried to do. And, you know, step by step. Now, that's not exact. Didn't go quite like that smoothly, but it was, <laughs> I think persistence was the key. I wanted to ask you about that because I'm sure you faced a lot of doubters on the journey, as many people who are prepared to put an audacious dream out in the world do. Um, how did you stay so committed to your vision in the face of people that were you know, chipping away or saying that that's not possible? And I guess also as well, when you're in an environment where you're not seeing many people who look like you that are on a similar trajectory, you, you many times I imagine felt quite isolated or alone. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it is interesting when I look back, especially in my 20s, how isolated and alone I was in a lot of ways. But I had this thing that I was determined to do. And it, it really is amazing if you've, if you've got this thing and you just feel really driven to do it. Those voices don't have the impact uh, that they do otherwise. Uh, I've, I've just found that you know, even whatever people said to me, I just sort of said, okay, but that's just one person and I still have steps on the way and I'm going to try. I'm just going to apply and I'm going to keep applying and, um, you know, step by step. Uh, you mentioned before that you faced, uh, it wasn't all smooth sailing. What were some of the setbacks and challenges you faced on your, on your journey to get into the astronaut program and, and ultimately to find yourself on a mission? Yeah, I think the, uh, the hardest thing for me is that I knew I needed to be excellent. And so anytime I, you know, when you're a new pilot, you make a mistake, you have a bad landing or a bad flight. And uh, I just took all of that stuff so incredibly seriously every <laughs> single time. It was like all the time. I felt like I had to be perfect all the time. And so, and you're not perfect all the time. Mm. So you make mistakes, you have a bad flight, um, or, or even more significantly, uh, you get passed over for upgrade to aircraft commander or instructor pilot, or uh, you don't get selected for, for something. Um, but you know what, next time you do, and, and that's what I found is, is the, the times that were most discouraging for me was when, when I had let myself down, because um, I knew I had to be perfect and excellent. 
And uh, so those are the most discouraging times. I think I was way harder on myself than anybody was on me. I can imagine that. I mean, that, that just conversation around perfectionism and needing to basically not put a foot wrong for, I mean, what length of time would we have been talking about there in terms of from when you started your career in the military through to when you managed to get uh, on board the International Space Station? That's a, that's a long period of time career-wise to not be able to <laughs> misstep. That's challenging. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes. We're talking more than a decade. So... Um, but, and, and, and of course I didn't live up to that. I mean, nobody could possibly, and uh, it would be a terrible thing if I said that, um, that I, I had, uh, but I think that, uh, my, for, for whatever reason, the, the mental attitude I had when I was discouraged was then I just have to get better. I have to do it better next time. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you can imagine I was just pretty, probably a fairly intense person to be with. I, <laughs> How I do I love him. you, Pam? <laughs> so, <laughs> That's always awesome. thinking about how to get better. Yeah. Yeah. And what were some of your approaches to that? I mean, in the sense of obviously you've got the set program as it is. I mean, were you putting in extra hours? Were you, what, what was your approach to kind of that personal development in, in such a competitive environment? Yeah. So it's interesting because, um, you know, for me, fortunately, uh, hitting the books is something that I was really comfortable doing. I always studied really hard. I went to a challenging university for undergrad and for my master's degree. So, uh, you know, I, I, through the course of secondary school and university, I sort of perfected my strategies for how to study and retain material. So it's a very different thing when you're in the cockpit of an airplane. Um, having the book knowledge and actually being able to make a judgment call in confusing or surprising circumstances. And I'm not even just talking about like when something goes wrong with the airplane, it's more like, well, this was our plan. We were supposed to meet with someone here and air refuel them. And then we were all going together uh, somewhere else and it's all falling apart because the weather's bad. Uh, the aircraft that was supposed to meet us has a maintenance problem uh, you know, in the, the, but I have a co-pilot who needs to get uh, a practice air refueling. And what am I going to do about it? How am I going to get all the mission objectives uh, when everything is not sticking with the plan? And so here, my approach to that was uh, what I, and I still call it my bag of tricks. Hmm. Um, I can't say I always make the right decision the first time. Uh, but I spend a lot of time thinking about my decisions and analyzing them afterwards and thinking about different strategies. And the good thing is, especially in aviation, there's a real culture of sharing knowledge and quote unquote, hangar flying is what we call it, where you sit around and tell stories about situations that you were in. And then you ponder, what would I do if, if that happened? And, um, you know, it's extraordinary. One day you wake up and you have a pretty big bag of tricks. And everybody else on the airplane is going, what are we going to do now? And you go, oh, yeah, I know what to do for this one. So it happens. You got to build your bag. You just, yeah, exactly. You build up your bag. So can you paint a picture for our listeners? Uh, what is involved in astronaut training? So astronaut training is, uh, I, you know, sort of the foundational bit of it is to understand all the systems of the spacecraft you're flying. In, in my case, I was flying the sh space shuttle, 
but we were also docked and had to operate and, in fact, build the space station. So I had to be familiar with, very familiar with all the systems. And in order to maintain that familiarity, um, there's like constant simulator practice and uh, sort of classroom sessions and uh, in front of a computer display that looks like the panel uh, where you practice running through some of the, you know, literally hundreds of procedures. And so you can't see every procedure every day or remember them. So maybe you haven't seen it in six months. So you try to sit down and, you know, rotate through. So once a week you practice those procedures and you go, now why did, why am I throwing that switch here? Oh, that's right. That's the way the system, you know, it's got a check valve in there and I, I have to do this step first. So that's, that's one way of maintaining, you know, hitting the books is one way, but, you know, sitting in the simulator. But there are also, um, pretty complex rules, just like in any uh, workplace environment, um, particularly a hazardous one, and aviation is no different. There's also things that you always do and things that you don't do, how you communicate with others and so forth. And so you have to have more complex simulations. And in fact, leading up to the entire crew in one simulator in one building and entire mission control in another building, everything's linked together. You have a common data stream, and then there are evil people behind the scenes who inject malfunctions. And you have to work together to, to solve those problems. And the, the uh, commander is ultimately responsible for making sure that the outcome is what you want. Now, during training, the outcome in a lot of cases was actually preparing my crew and teaching them to work together. So for me, that was, uh, especially as a commander, a very important part of that particular training, but also all the classroom work and, and other types of training that we did together is to teach my crew what the boundaries were uh, for culture. We always do this. We never do that. You never talk to mission control in any way other than respectfully. Uh, you always check with another crew member prior to throwing a critical switch that's an irreversible step. And you ask them to back you up. And those are the kinds of, of things that you reinforce because, of course, once you're on orbit, it's too late to teach people those things. Mm. You, you have to teach them uh, in, in training. Now, astronauts do other things, too. Uh, they, in particular, they support other astronauts who are in space uh, or preparing to go to space ahead of your, your crew. So, um, it, you know, for example, uh, on my mission, my last mission, we had uh, a major emergency as we were unfurling a solar array. It ripped and the people on the ground had to design a solution to the problem. So uh, literally dozens of engineers and astronauts got together to work to solve those problems. And then, you know, because real time we were still, we had things to do on orbit and we didn't have access to the resources that they did, engineering resources that they do on the ground. So for every, uh, you know, I've had different responsibilities. I've strapped crews in, uh, my friends uh, sending them off in the space shuttle, uh, helping them climb into their seats tuck them in, uh, strap them in, get their radios working correctly. 
and get the cockpit set up exactly the way they wanted as they prepared to fly their mission. And so there's a lot of different types of responsibilities. As a test pilot, one of my major responsibilities, particularly later on, was to um, lead the crew office decisions about the design of future vehicles. Like, what do we have to have in the next spacecraft and why? I find all that fascinating. And I'm just thinking about the extraordinary demands on you as a leader in that context, particularly like thinking about that as being an incredibly um, high risk, high performance environment. I'm really interested. You know, we talk all the time about the importance of culture fit and how you select the right people for a team dynamic. And obviously it goes without saying that you've got extraordinary technical expertise to even be accepted into the program. But what did you learn about both selecting and then leading um, in a team in that sort of pressure environment? What, what was non-negotiable? What was critical? What were some of the core, you know, activities or strategies that you employed to make sure that team were all on the same page and, and functioning, you know, effectively given the challenges that, that lay ahead of you? Right. Well, you don't always have a choice in choosing. Uh, it's certainly not in the astronaut office. Later on in my uh, executive career, uh, I had a lot more hiring and um, firing flexibility uh, as opposed to, um, you know, the, the, there are many needs. For example, there's international partners and uh, there are, it's, you know, negotiated basically by country that yes, there's going to be an astronaut from X country on this mission. So as a commander, that's not something you get a choice about. And um, Which you know, is even I think more challenging always, in many ways, isn't it? When you think about getting yeah. sort of dealt the situation you've got to lead and dealing with, I remember you saying actually when we spoke about this previously, it was sort of a, almost a, a middle, uh, a little uh, model United Nations, what you were contending with up there in space. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And right, and you're dealing with uh, a significant set of cultural variations, particularly because uh, Russia was our major partner, but, you know, Japanese, Canadians, um, I flew with an Italian, a Japanese, a Russian. Um, so uh, all very, very uh, different approaches to problem solving and also a layer of cultural behavior that you have to learn to get comfortable with. One of the most successful things uh, I think that NASA has learned to do is to send their crews off um, in something called the National Outdoor Leadership School. And it is uh, a program that is designed to take you outdoors together. Uh, for example, um, I went sea kayaking with my crew for 10 days on my third crew. My second crew, we went hiking in the Canyonlands of Utah. And uh, the idea is that there are some, some strong space analogs. Everything that you, you have to bring everything with you that you need. And if you don't have it, you have to learn to live without it. Um, you have to be very efficient at packing your gear. Everything floats in microgravity. So one of the things you absolutely cannot do on orbit is to be kind of disorganized and sloppy. And course we all know there's some, some ranges of personality types and and uh, you know some people are sort of uh, well there's a horizontal surface I think I'll leave something on. <laughs> and um, you, you know you you simply can't do that in space and the same thing is true on a on a on a backpacking trip like that because you have to be able to pack your gear efficiently quickly 
and uh, you know cook breakfast and, and get get walking. There's this aspect of physical risk. You know, some people are outdoors people and maybe a little more fit. You might have somebody who has an orthopedic issue. Uh, you know, maybe a trick knee. So you have to make decisions as a team. And you know, set your goal. How how many how many kilometers are we going to hike today, or or to paddle today? And you know, who, who, who how are we going to manage it if there's one person who's you know maybe not quite as fit? Maybe we'll just take a little more out of that pack and share it around, mm-hmm. and give them some other responsibility. And um, you know, boy, that'll really piss an astronaut off. And um, is taking stuff out of out of their backpack. Um, because no one wants to be perceived as weak. Uh, astronauts all want the hardest job in the room. Um, <laughs> so leading, leading a group of astronauts is, is really, uh, the, the really hard part is when someone has to have the responsibility of, for example, rebooting the computers every morning. Now, how boring is that? They want to be in charge of the spacewalk, right? Cool. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you have to learn to manage that. And and for me, the uh, the key that I, I learned from other ter- tremendous leaders ahead of me is to actually value each person for the unique personal and professional attributes that they bring to the crew and then make a point of highlighting it to everyone in the crew. So on my first crew, we had a, a guy very quiet, kind of reserved, Compared to the rest of us, we were raging extroverts, right? <laughs> Just all of us. And so you can easily see how he might feel a little left out. He might feel a little isolated. Um, it would be easy for us to, you know, everybody's talking at once and, and you know, we're leaving him out. And instead, uh, he was a serious detail guy. So we put him in charge of a lot of the, like, where is this located? Where are we storing it on the shuttle? And how can we find it? And so we'd all be having a conversation and somebody would say, well, where are we putting that thing? And he would just spit it out. And we said, you're a bulldog. You never lose a single, you know, you, once you sink your teeth into a fact, you never let it go. So when he would do something like that, we'd all go, grr, grr, good job, bulldog. And he had his identity in, in our crew, that was just as powerful and significant as any of the, you know, extroverted, uh, you know, <laughs> exciting people who uh, might seem to dominate discussions and dominate the mission, but they really didn't because we, we, we you know, that was such an important lesson for me is to see everyone and value what they do. Uh, it's a great takeaway and a great lesson. And I, I wanted to ask, you know, when you've spent your whole life dreaming about a goal, uh, visualizing it, no doubt. I mean, you, you've spent gosh knows how many hundreds, if not thousands of hours in simulators preparing for it. How did space match up to your expectations? And, and where was it different? Well, it's the one thing, you know, you can have, there are certain types of, um, there are certain types of training that you can do to, but but there there's absolutely no way you can have a sustained environment of microgravity, and and it has a significant impact actually on your body. Um, there are real issues. Um, That's what it told us it takes. People who have well, people have trouble using the bathroom, for example, mm. and 
there, there's no way that you're going to know whether you're going to feel motion sickness, whether you're going to be able to figure out using the bathroom, if you're going to feel terrible for the first three days on orbit. And of course, the, you know, definitely fear of making a mistake. I have to say, though, that space far exceeded uh, my wildest dreams. It's, it's very, very difficult for us to explain it. I'm really hoping we'll send a few more uh, <laughs> artists uh, instead of engineers and pilots to, to talk about it because the sensation of floating in particular and uh, the, the complete isolation you have from the earth in a, in a very strange way. I mean, you look down at the earth and it's gorgeous and it's beautiful and you realize, oh my gosh, it was really hard to get here and it's going to be really hard to get home. And every single person, not just that I know and love, but could ever know is down there. And so there is this sense of isolation uh, that's, but, but it's, it's also magnificent. Um, the sense of looking down at the earth as a fellow spaceship, you're in your spaceship and everybody down there on the earth is in their spaceship. And when you see the Earth as a spaceship and us as the crew, uh, you will never look at any environmental differently is, is issue the same way again. I wanted to ask you how it changed your perspective. I can only imagine orbiting the Earth in that way. It, it would fundamentally shift your, your view on matters like that. How did it change things for you? Very much so. The, 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 sense, that, uh, the sense of connectivity and I think the great, thing for me is I think it had a long-term impact on my ability to think strategically. I really believe that because it, it, it would be so easy to say, for example, well, I'm going to, you know, there's a, a, a particular lake that we're going to protect the water in it and we're going to protect the water source for the city that we live in and so forth. But the, the reality is that that water source is deeply connected around the world. And so when you really see that, I, I think I've always been drawn since, since I came back from flying in space to those really big pictures. How does this fit globally? How does this fit in the big picture? Where are all the connections? And if you really want to affect change in this world, you really need to understand it as a systems engineering problem. You can say, well, there's this one thing I want to fix. But almost always, it would have been fixed already if there weren't three other things around it that also needed to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things that I love the most now, today, what really fires me up is solving problems from a technology, business, and policy perspective. Because if the three of them don't have synergy and harmony, you're not actually going to achieve what you want. Absolutely, or at least not in any kind of sustained way. You might get a temporary win or a Band-Aid type of fix, but certainly not any long-term traction. Exactly. Can I ask, what were your biggest leadership lessons from your time up there operating in such a high-pressure environment, you know, decision-making, um, you know, you mentioned before needing to do a repair, you know, where engineers are literally creating, you know, a solution down on the ground and then you've got the logistical challenge put on your plate of finding a way to implement something that you've, you've not conceived of despite all the planning because obviously best intentions, things can still go awry. What were some of your major fundamental lessons and takeaways from the, your entire experience in space? 
Well, I had a very strong perspective before going into space that because I couldn't be everywhere at once, uh, and you don't want to be the person who's telling everyone what to do uh, all the time. In, in fact, you, you, what you want is uh, people to know what the right thing to do is. So how, how, do they, how do they know what the right thing to do is? They know because you've created a culture. And, you know, granted, I, I, was, I had the ability to do this around a fairly narrow um, perspective, which is, you know, we're, we spend literally hundreds of hours in the simulator together. And uh, what is the feedback that I give them? Um, wh what is the guidance? You know, have you thought about this? You might want to talk to these people. Um, you know, go ahead and ask the ground what they think about this particular aspect of it. And, um, and in some cases, actually just looking someone in the eye and saying, I want you to understand, I expect you to be the expert in this area. So the rest of the crew is counting on you that when this particular task comes up, you're the leader and you've got all the answers. And you can put as many notes into your crew notebook as you want. Here's what my crew notebook looked like when I led this task on my last flight. Um, so, you know, this is, but you're in charge of that and, um, and sort of setting that expectation extremely clearly. So for me, when we had the, uh, emergency with the solar array tear, uh, we had a, a discussion with the ground. So we set up a laptop computer and basically it's a version of Skype. Uh, so we're talking to the flight director and the lead uh, for the spacewalking team and the lead robotics on the ground and the whole crew is around and they describe uh, a pretty hair-raising <laughs> series of operations to go stitch up this solar array and repair it. <laughs> now, as I mentioned earlier, there's a bunch of like rules that we do to keep ourselves safe. We call them flight rules and they're, they're really operational rules that say, Hey, for example, we don't let a spacewalker go more than a 30-minute distance, you know, so they could get back to the airlock within 30 minutes. And that's because our secondary oxygen supply, in case they, they get a leak in the suit, there's a, a small oxygen, oxygen supply that can feed the leak and uh, keep pressure in the suit for about 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So we never send a spacewalker more than 30 minutes away. Well, that was the very first thing. I'm looking at this going, oh, yeah, yeah. Scott is going to be more than an hour away from the airlock. Wow. Um, there's just no way that he could possibly get back. He's going to be at the tip of a robotic arm way out at the further edges of, of the space station. So uh, I'm realizing uh, the complexity of what we're going to do. I've got a bunch of notes and uh, that I'm taking to myself and it's sort of like, okay, well, the spacewalkers need to do this. We need to check and see how much, uh, electrical insulating tape we've got on board, and I'll check with the space station commander. Uh, those robotics guys need to go practice that uh, a couple of times. We'll need to print out some diagrams. You know, just um, just all these things. I'm thinking about how we need to get ready for this. And we closed the Skype call, and then my crew started to talk to each other, and I just sort of floated away a little bit. You know, we were in this airlock, but and believe me, in zero gravity, even tiny spaces have lots of room because you can float on the ceiling. And that's exactly what I did. <laughs> of course. Just 
kind of pulled back to the ceiling. Talk about getting the um, 10,000 foot view, right? You know, I pulled back to the ceiling and I just watched my crew for a while and I listened to them. You know, everything that was in my crew notebook that I had written down, plus several things I hadn't thought of. They were all talking to each other and they were all saying, we got to do this and we got to do that and we're going to do this and, you know, will you do that first while we do this next? And it was absolutely a peak moment in my life for me as a leader because this gamble that I had taken on the ground that setting up the culture would mean that whether I was in the room or not, everyone was going to work together successfully. They were going to be focused. They were going to be experts in what they needed to be and think of everything that they could possibly think of to, to create success. And they didn't need me to tell them what to do to make that happen. So and I got an that was job as a leader at that point. You know, I, it felt fantastic because I was like, okay, good. That, that's, this is, that was a, it was a peak moment for me to say everybody knows what they need to do and they're going to go do it and they're going to do it way better than mm -hmm. if I was telling them what to do. Forgive me, this is not, no pun intended here. How hard is it to come back down to earth after you've gone and done something like that? I mean, even hearing you talk about the complexity of that challenge, the adrenaline rush, the, the perspective you talked about having on, on earth while you're up there, how hard is transitioning back to earth and back into now kind of, I want to call it, I guess, civilian life post being in the, uh, the astronaut program? Yeah, it, it, it is. I, so one of my very good friends actually told me uh, once the hardest, the two hardest things about being an astronaut are getting selected and leaving. And, uh, and that was tremendous wisdom. Um, so on my first and second flights, um, I was joyful when I landed. Um, I hadn't made a mistake. The mission had gone very well. Uh, there were some challenges, but we worked through it and I was still on the flight roster. I hadn't lost my job. I was going to get a chance to go to space again. So there is some discouragement with going to the back of the line, which you do after you land. Um, but I think it's nothing compared to uh, a sense of losing your identity uh, when you leave the astronaut office. Uh, so what's interesting about it, though, is uh, actually you really don't ever leave the astronaut office. It is, it's a life family. Now, I, I'm not in the know about every little thing that happened on the space station last week, and that's hard. Um, you know, when you leave a job and you no longer sort of know what's, you know, the inner story in, in the business and so forth, but uh, the connection that, that astronauts have is like family forever. And my crews, all three of them, they are my family. We do stay in, in touch with each other. We may not see each other as often as, as we'd like. Um, but there's also a very, very strong network after the astronaut office. So some of my closest friends now are, some are people who were in the office at the same time I was, but several of them left the office before I even came. So we didn't even overlap in the office. We certainly didn't fly together, but um, but there's a, a very very powerful connection that never goes away. And in fact, um, there's an astronaut who I barely met, um, 
who I'm having dinner with on Sunday night just because I happen to be in his city. And that's really wonderful. You, you know, it is still a community. It's still a family. And that's what I've tried to tell people when their time comes to leave. But it's a little scary. I can imagine. I'm interested to get your take on where the space race is at now. I feel like, you know, the area you talked about 50 years ago this July was a world dominated by nation states. It was, you know, obviously the space race, it goes without saying, we still use that that term. Now we've seen a, a real privatisation of that landscape. We've also seen Australia recently launching its own space agency. What for you is the the interesting development or your most keenly watched aspect of this rapidly evolving landscape that is space? What's the next frontier? Well, yeah, it's interesting. You're, you're exactly right. Uh, it's actually a little bit the Wild West because it's been nation states governed by agreements. And now we have commercial activities. And from a policy perspective, overseeing some of that and ensuring you know, for example, uh, very challenging issues like orbital debris that threaten the lives of astronauts in low Earth orbit, but also other people's satellites. So, um, you know, it is a really interesting time to watch. It's exciting. For me, I want more people to see the Earth the way that I've seen it. And I think that uh, human spaceflight going commercial is the way to go. I mean, imagine in aviation, if we'd never got past having government aircraft and the only people who ever got to fly were F-35 pilots, mm. right? Or C-17 pilots. You know, we can't even fathom a world that wouldn't have commercial aviation. I think we're going to see that kind of impact from commercial space. Um, the, the, the thing is that we are really in the infancy of human spaceflight in a lot of ways. There were a lot of mishaps. Uh, early on in aviation. And I think there probably will continue to be mishaps in human spaceflight as well. But it's actually how we're going to learn. We're going to get better at it. We're going to give everyone the opportunity to see the Earth that way. And we're actually going to go out and explore the rest of the solar system and find new resources, but also new frontiers. And Australia and the U.S., both have a very proud history of people who just said, uh, nah, I'm moving from the city. I want to go have my own plot of land and make my own life. And I think you're going to see that happen in space too. What an exciting thing to think about. I look forward to watching it all unfold. And it feels like we've just got a, an increase in momentum over the last couple of years to, to just see so many more players, a lot more funding heading into the space, you name it. It will be really interesting to watch how it shapes out and, and how it evolves over the course of the next generation. Pam, I wanted to ask you, I'm very mindful of your time. I've got two quick questions I wanted to ask you to finish. The first is, is there a, a, a key bit of advice or a lesson that you had in your career that's kind of been a, a fundamental tenant that you've lived your um, your life by? Is there something that's been a real source of ongoing wisdom for you? Yeah, it depends on uh, <laughs> on what part of life you're talking about. <laughs> I guess Whether it's, it's your leadership. personal life or your work. Yeah, leadership. I think uh, for me, uh, leadership is the, the central piece of it for me is to is to really see inside the people that I'm leading and um, and love them love them for exactly who they are and what they're good at 
and uh, try to help structure an environment where they're steered clear of the things that they're not good at. Uh, I've found that, um, you know, particularly in one of the jobs that I've had after I left uh, the astronaut office, I was at uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, had uh, about 20 program managers working for me. And not everyone can fit in that particular environment. It's extreme cutting edge uh, technical innovation. Uh, so there's uh, high requirements for creativity, but also high requirements for executing and actually delivering a demonstration. And there are people who are uh, more at one end of the spectrum or the other. And I always found, even when I had to let someone go, uh, I spent a lot of time with them trying to help them understand what they were really good at. And uh, it's astounding how powerful that is when you can say to somebody, look, you know, this is why you're not a good fit for this job, but you're really good at X, Y, and Z. And that's what you need to focus on and go find a job where you can really thrive. And it is pretty shocking to be thanked when you let someone go because you've had that kind of very productive conversation with them. So it's really about, about love, I think, to me. You know, I sincerely love everyone who's ever worked for me. I love and, that. I love um, that there's a message about love. Them. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's how you help people find their destiny in life. That's beautiful. And Pam, finally, can I ask, we're really big at Coffee Pods in uh, encouraging people to translate inspiration and ideas into action. If you could encourage people to go and do something, having heard your story and listened to the incredible journey that you've been on, what would you like to leave them with as a call to action? Do it. Just do it and don't <laughs> quit. Don't give up. I, I mean, I'm always shocked when I talk to people who are like, oh, well, I've always thought I wanted to do this. And I'm like, do it. Go to law school. What, what, what's holding you back? Why you'd be great at that, and uh, and and it seems like so often they're just waiting for someone to to just say yeah, give them permission. So that's my my big message is go do it and and don't quit and don't listen to the voices. Just keep 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 at it. Oh, what a wonderful note to finish on right where we started, you know, talking about your extraordinary overarching ambition and your preparedness to keep at it despite all the people who said you couldn't do it. Pam, it has been such a pleasure to spend time with you. The career that you've had is extraordinary. I'm excited that we get you at least part of your time in Australia now, adding value to all of our exciting, innovative uh, work in the space arena and across the data landscape and more. Um, but thank you so much for the openness that you've shared with. Oh, thank you, Holly. It's uh, fantastic. I love Australia and I'm so excited for space and innovation and the exciting things that are happening. And it's uh, just wonderful to be a part of it. Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.